Let us now turn to the scriptures, to the book of Joshua. We haven't read from the book of Joshua in a long time. It follows along immediately after Deuteronomy. So after Moses, after the Mosaic revelation and legislation, we see this this great book of the, the, the man that took up the mantle of Israel's leadership when Moses had died, Joshua, the great, the great prophet and leader Joshua, man of God. And so uh, here we find him talking about the settling of the people in Israel. It's Joshua uh, 22, and you know uh, Joshua, Joshua was part of the final conquering of the lands and bringing the people in and then organizing them by their tribes into the lands that they were given. So here we see a, a description of what happened with the, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we begin to read with verse 10, chapter 22 of Joshua, verse 10. And I'm going to read through verse uh, 20, uh, 27, I think. I'm not going to read all the way to the end of 34, just because I think that the gist of it is contained in these verses. So beginning to read with verse 10. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar to the, on the frontier, an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to, go to war against them. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead. And with him, ten rulers, one ruler each, from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the Lord, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What treachery is this? that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us, from which we were not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did 
did not perish alone in his iniquity. Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know. If it is in rebellion or if it is in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between you and the the children of Reuben and the children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease, fearing the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generations time to come, that we may say, here is the replica of the altar to the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices. But it is a witness between you and us. May the Lord bless this reading to our good uh, understanding. <clears throat> we we have as a nation, to, we're celebrating this weekend as the 4th of July celebration and it happens to fall this year on the Lord's Day and so there might be especially there might be in the mind of our people questions about the the rightness or the wrongness of even of even establishing a, a secular holiday like this or a a national holiday like this um, for the sake of our memorializing our history. And um, uh, we might ask ourselves, is, is, is establishing such historical memorials, even statues and things like that, is that really legitimate in the eyes of the Lord? Uh, because we know that these things have not been done by scripture. We have not been commanded to do these things. So are we unrighteous in doing them? And uh, especially then in terms of the 4th of July or the founding of America, the founding of the the history of America, locating it to this day uh, because the Declaration of Independence was read on this day in 1776. And so uh, people might ask, well, is, the, is this whole idea a kind of a corrupt idea? Is, is, there any, is there any sense of legitimacy for it? 
And so I turned here to, I, I've gone to a place in the scriptures where Israel did a similar thing and where her own people were somewhat allergic to the idea, but in the end it was justified by their own purity of heart. And it, it, it's a very interesting historical twist or turn in Israel's history. So it's interesting just from a historical angle, but it really does shed light on these kinds of things today. And it even helps us to understand how to apply God's law in, uh, across the board in our day, so that it has far-reaching ethical implications for civil law and these kinds of things that most people probably haven't thought about. And so I thought we would deal with this on this day and, um, and use it to help us in our own fidelity to God and our own interest of being pure before the Lord. So... I want to uh, I want to look first of all at our uh, something of our Declaration of Independence. Then I want to look at what happened in Israel, and then we want to draw some lessons from that. So let's first first of all I brought with me today a little copy of the Constitution where it has a the copy of the Declaration of Independence in it. I won't read the whole thing, but a couple of different ideas um, are are helpful to realize that our nation when our nation was founded. Uh, it's tied to this document, to the Declaration of Independence. Some people only look at the Constitution, and because the because there's no reference to the to the Lord per se in the Constitution, they say, well, the whole founding of America was a, just a secular idea, had nothing to do with the Lord. But if you if you look at the Declaration of Independence, while it's not as clear or as uh, biblical as I would like it to be. It's, it's still, it's far from being a secular document. Um, it says, at the begin, as, as it begins, it says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands or connections which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. For, so the Declaration of Independence was not just a declaration of independence from Israel, but it was a list of causes. It was a list of complaints that, that, were, that were supposed to justify the, 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 the Declaration of, of, you know, of Independence from Great Britain. And so... It goes on further to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator, capital C, with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we see right away that the Declaration of Independence ties the commencement of our nation to uh, nature and nature's God who is none other than the Jehovah God of the Bible, and it it also mentions that um, it, it also explains our citizenship and our rights of citizenship by the idea that um, that we are endowed by our Creator with these rights. In other words, these rights did not they're not human. Today we talk about human rights as if we have rights simply by being, being human. That's not what the Declaration says. It says we have certain rights by the, by the nature of the fact that we are created by God. And so all of that is, is good. And uh, 
they go on to say that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, that is to the, the, the rights, the, the liberty, the goodness of a people before the Lord, whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. And then it, it, two other ideas in the beginning, it says prudence would dictate that we don't do this uh, uh, precipitously, but it says if we have reason to do it, which they then brought, and they, they list one, five, ten, they list, they list, list uh, uh, a list of, of uh, there are five, five paragraphs each paragraph having five offenses that have been committed against the people. So there, there end up being 25 reasons for why they uh, find themselves to be uh, in uh, a, a situation of slavery and tyranny at this time, 1776. So uh, this is this, it's a wonderful little document. And um, I, I don't think that the, 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 the government today that talks about the sacred halls of Congress, they, they really wouldn't like you. You know, people could quote this today, and they, we could go down lists of grievances today where our freedoms have been curtailed and minimized. And we could, we could make a justification today for a, uh, a rebellion, much as we did in our uh, background, in our origination. And the, the politicians today say, basically they argue, you people have no reasons to, to challenge us and our authority today. And they, the left unsaid is the idea, or the, the rhetorical question, are we not your gods? <laughs> but of course, they, they are. Neither was, no, neither was King George or the English Parliament in that day. So, um, so based upon this 4th of July declaration in July 4th, 1776, the country erected this memorial uh, in, on the calendar uh, to be the, uh, called the 4th of July or Independence Day, whereby we celebrated the ideas and the formation of our nation and the fact that they were tied to these ideas, to, this, to the idea that we were a God-ordained country, that God, by his creation, he gave us certain rights and privileges, which were being trampled right now by the governor's that we had at that time. So that is the memorial, or that is the witness that we have as a nation that we're celebrating today. Uh, or, well, uh, as Christians, we're not celebrating it today so much as the, the weekend, and tomorrow is actually the, the, the uh, six-day uh, celebration when things will be done, uh, when there will be uh, parades and that sort of thing uh, before our country. <clears throat> Now, what did Israel do on this occasion that we see here in Joshua 22? Well, we see the setting here is that Joshua is taking the different tribes, showing them their properties. They're meeting at Shiloh at this point where the Ark, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the tabernacle was. And there from that bastion of spirituality and authority on the part of God, Joshua, under the inspiration of God, is telling the, the various tribes where they should go. And to, the, to, the, to these two and a half tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh, remember 
because the Levites could not inherit a whole territory like the other 12 tribes, um, the, the, the tribe of Manasseh was given, uh, well, the children of, of, uh, of uh, Israel was, were given uh, two of the, uh, two of the um, inherited lands instead of uh, Levite. And so here Manasseh, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh gets this, uh, gets this additional land. And the, the key is that this land that they, that Reuben and Gad and uh, Manasseh, the, the land that they inherited was on the east side of the Jordan River. And so um, they, as they, as they moved to this territory, they built this very large altar on the border. And when, uh, and it was, it mimicked the large altar that was in the tabernacle that Israel would sacrifice its things on in the tabernacle. So um, Israel hears about this and immediately in verse 10 and 11, uh, Israel is concerned about it. Verse 12, it, it explains something of why they were suspicious of this. Now, I have to say immediately that, this, that, that Israel's reaction to this was a healthy sign. This is, exactly, this is exactly the opposite of what we have going on in our presbytery today, where evil things were done, and people are just basically saying, well, it's not as big a deal as you other people are making of it, namely the, the two-thirds of the presbytery that have complained against uh, the lack of discipline uh, in this case, in, our, in, the, in a church in our presbytery. But here in Israel, they, they were, they were, there was grounds for being suspicious, and so they were. And they, they, it wasn't like it took a whole lot of politicking to get them suspicious or get them alarmed. It's like the whole, the other, the other uh, nine tribes or nine and a half tribes came together almost immediately and they were ready to go to war over this. Now, why was that? Well, it was because the, the tribe of Judah, of Reuben, Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh, the, the memorial that they set up on the border was this replica of the altar that was in the tabernacle. And so the other Israelites, they looked at this and they said to themselves, what are these people, are they going to establish an, an altar? Altar? You know, another altar besides the one that God has told us to erect? Uh, an altar that's outside of the tabernacle that is not under the control of the Levites and the Aaronic priesthood? Are they basically setting up, and if they did that, that Israel realized the relationship between cult and culture or religion and culture. And they said, if you establish another religion, another source of religion, then you're going to deviate. You're going to de develop as a, as a separate culture, not a culture of the Lord, but what we call today a humanistic culture, a culture after your own making, after your own fashion. And so almost immediately, as soon as the reports got back to the rest of Israel, that this altar had been erected, we see, in a sense, this wonderfully healthy reaction to to this, which was to to um, to muster the soldiers of Israel in verse twelve, <clears throat> that there would be uh, action taken. Verse twelve says, "And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, to go to war 
against them. So as much as it was, it was kind of a healthy reaction, which I wish today we would have people that were more ready to raise the alarm, to raise the hue and the cry that something is wrong. Uh, too often today, when people do that, they're simply considered alarmists without considering the reasons of why they have done this. Now, the reasons that they did this come out in verse 13 and following. Phineas, one of the sons of uh, the high priest Eleazar, is assigned to lead this group. They take, a they take a representative congress of men from each tribe. They take one of the leaders, one of the congressional leaders of each of the tribes, and they go and they follow Phineas and they go to entreat or to discuss this with the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. What are they concerned about? Well, uh, verse 13 to 16, they consider it, a, the, the, the fear is that it was an, an act of treachery, it says in verse 16, that you've committed against the Lord to turn away this day from following the Lord, that you've built yourselves an altar. Now, the, to Israel's credit, they were concerned for the way all the other Israelites were worshiping. They didn't consider worship just a throw-off or a throw-away kind of a concept, a secondary issue. They were concerned. And so they saw this altar and they were concerned. So they were concerned, first of all, in verse 16, about treachery. Verse 18, it says that they were concerned about the covenant threat that this imposed. Now, most people today just have no idea of this concept, but Israel did. And this is a great proof text to show uh, the, the, uh, the, what, the why you, we, we should be concerned about uh, evil and its effects upon our community. In other words, if I do evil, it's on my head, but it's bigger than that. There's a covenant dimension to evil. It's not only individual, but it's also covenantal, which means that it affects all of those people who are in covenant, like me, with a particular community. And so we see in verse 18 that, um, uh, uh, well, they talk about the plague that fell upon them in Baal from Baal Peor, verse 17. Verse 18 says, But that you must turn away this day from following the Lord, and it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But what is the, well, the, the very first, one of the very fundamental ideas of libertarianism, which is a very popular political philosophy today, is that it doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if, if, if one person does evil, then that's on his head. And it's only on his head. So they, they, they tell the community, don't worry about people that want to do evil unless it affects you. Well, it does affect us, but it, it affects us in an unseen way, covenantally, because God exists. God is there. And when God sees one person of a community or one person of a city or one person of a state, one, one family or one group, one city within a state, when God sees that person or that, that group of people being evil and he sees the rest of the people just lackadaisical about it, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what they're doing because that's, their, that's on their head. Uh, if they want to take drugs or they want to do this or that, that's on their head. The rest of us are free to do what we, we, we want to do. So as long as it doesn't impinge on us, well, the, the Bible says here, it does impinge on you. There's a connective 
relationship in life between the individual and the group. And it doesn't matter. God and we we and we get our we get our um, ways of seeing these things from the Bible itself, from illustrations like this. So it doesn't mean that we that we should uh, just try to interfere in each other's lives to the greatest extent and not give each other any freedom, not give each other any privacy. No, it doesn't say that, but it says that where these things become notorious, then we should care about them, and we should be concerned about group righteousness as much as we are concerned with individual righteousness. This was the whole basis of God striking at Sodom and Gomorrah with uh, with lightnings and burning comets and that sort of thing that fell upon uh, the city and burned it to the ground. Because there's a covenantal aspect to evil. Unhappily, even many Presbyterians today who are covenantal theologians, they don't get this. But the Israelites did, and so they were concerned about it, and so they brought their their complaint um, to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Now we see in verse 21 the response that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh gave. And that response totally turned the situation. You see what it says in verse 21. Um, uh, At the end of verse 21 it said, They said to the heads of the divisions of of Israel, uh, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, even even using the name of the Lord here, they, they hype up you see, the the way that they addressed the Lord or the way that they talked about the Lord, showing the great respect theologically that they had for God. So their doctrine of God was elaborated by way of getting themselves out of this hole or showing their brother Israelites that they were they were not set on evil. So they 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 enhanced their theology rather than rather than um, uh, Making it smaller or dismissing it, they they elaborate on their theology, and then they said uh, that they said that God knows, and let Israel itself know if it is rebellion. In other words, they're saying if we're in rebellion or if we're in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. <clears throat> if we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to burn, to offer peace offerings on it, anything. Let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, verse 24, but in fact we have done it for fear, for a reason. And then they explain the fear and the reason. The fear and the reason has to do with the psychology of people. The psychology of people, and the, they, they know the way people think. And they know that with the passage of time, people's minds can change. So what is the fear? What, what, do they, what do they think psychologically? They said, because we're on the east side of this river, and the river is a natural boundary, they said the time may well come when the people in Israel think, these people are really outside the boundaries of Israel. They're across the Jordan. So they're not really equal with us. They're not really the same in the same covenant as we are. And uh, so Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh said, "We were worried about this. We want, but we so we wanted the people of Israel to realize we knew that we were a hundred percent Israeli. 
We understood ourselves to be in a covenant relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, the whole, the whole, and this whole enterprise called Israel. And so, in order to remind ourselves and in order to remind the rest of Israel of this, we built this replica. And they call it a replica and not an altar. It's not an active altar. They did not plan to make any real sacrifices on it. But it was a replica to remind them that they needed to be in covenant with the God of, of, the, of the tabernacle, with Jehovah God. So that they, they, they put this there as a reminder to them and to Israel that they recognized their need to go to the tabernacle to worship. So it was kind of like a sign along the roadside. Remember, you are Israelites and, and to the rest of Israel. Remember, we know, we know that it's a responsibility of ours to be in good covenant relationship with the Lord God of the west side of the Jordan. So that because they know that people with the passage of time, people are up, time does strange things to our minds. And they're pretty, they were pretty accurate in their fears and in their reason. And so they did this. Now, somebody could argue, well, maybe they should have picked a different, uh, a different uh, replica or a different uh, witness to do this. But it doesn't seem, in this case, it doesn't seem like God was upset with them for this. God was more concerned about their motive. And he sees their motive as pure. So that even though they had made a replica of a holy thing, namely the altar of sacrifice, because they did it for a, a good reason and a secular reason, a reason having to do with the six days and not the seventh day, uh, God apparently gives his approval here by turning away Israel's wrath from these tribes and what they were, what they were doing. And so um, uh, it says here that, that, that Reuben's response, verse 21, um, um, I'm sorry, I mean, um, the Israel's response um, is found in verse, um, verse 30 where it says, Now when Phinehas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Verse 31, Then Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the children of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. So he's saying, I know from this that we will not be held guilty by God with this covenant guilt. We shall be innocent. And so Phineas and Eleazar, the son of Eleazar, the rulers returned and they rejoiced. And the 33 says, it pleased the children of Israel to hear this report. And so the whole nation was united around faithfulness and around faith. And the, the, verse 34 says, The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar the witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And we see that word witness used here in verse 34, also in verse um, 29, and also in verse uh, 27. 27, 29, and 34, they, uh, they were persuaded 
that this was a memorial or a witness to fidelity, to faithfulness and to goodness, and not something that was a seduction to ruin their faith and to ruin their thought. So it's a wonderful story. Now there are a number of lessons that we can draw from this that are also very helpful for us in terms of systematic theology and ethics. Um, Number one, cultural memorials can be legitimate. If there's nothing wrong with them theologically, they, they can be legitimate. And so things like erecting days on your schedule like the 4th of July or Thanksgiving Day, these things can be legitimate, even though God has not told us to do them. Some of us, because of Sola Scriptura, we think that we, that unless we are authorized to do something, we can't do it. But remember, that's that has to do with the seventh day and not the six days. On the six days of the week, uh, unless something is offensive, we can do it. On the seventh day, Something, it cannot be offensive, but it also has to be ordered or commanded by God, like the singing of psalms and worship. And that's very important to Reformed Presbyterians. We, 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 we want to go only by what God has clearly commanded on the Lord's Day and in our worship. But that's one of the big differences between the, seven, the seventh day and the six days. On the seventh day, just because God never mentioned the Bible that we should have insurance companies, it doesn't mean that building up an insurance company is against the Lord. Or, you know, <laughs> using fertilizer or, you know, some other modern convenience of agriculture. Uh, God, God leaves the six days open to discovery and to analysis and to bettering ourselves in terms of advancing ourselves. The six days are for exploring the creation and seeing what secrets God has embedded in the creation, discovering those secrets and using them and making ourselves better and stronger by them. In the same way that cement is stronger than bricks or clay that might be made into bricks, in the same way that nylon is a new fabric that's been discovered and can be used for clothing. See, all of these things are fine even though God has not commanded them. In the same way that putting up this memorial it wouldn't have been okay if they were putting up a literal altar that would be used as an altar. But because they, they built it as a memorial, it was fine. It was okay. It was a six-day kind of adventure that uh, our Thanksgiving is, our Fourth of July is, and that kind of thing. So first of all, in terms of lessons, cultural memorials can be legitimate. Now, if you put up a cultural memorial and, and you say you dedicate it to Baal, that's uh-uh. <laughs> not because God has said don't dedicate anything to Baal don't give Satan credit for anything whether it's on the seventh day or the sixth day but as long as it's as long as it's not wrong then and you have a good motive in mind then that's fine um, uh, so cultural number one cultural memorials legitimate number two cultural memorials or cultural works need not be instituted directly by revelation uh, God says, uh, cultivate the earth and subdue it. He says, develop the creation. But he doesn't say specifically, do it in terms of architecture or do it in terms of medicine or do it in terms of business theory and that sort of thing. That's left up to us to discover. Thirdly, 
Uh, so the revelation, we don't need to live our lives in terms of positive commands totally by the scriptures uh, if it has to do with the development of the creation. Thirdly, uh, these can be helpful to us in terms of righteousness and uh, awareness. And we see how this was helpful to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. Uh, we saw what their fears were. We saw what their reason was. We saw what they did with psychology. And we have to admit, it wasn't they didn't have a bad idea. It was helpful to them to keep them faithful. Though they were on the east side of the Jordan, it was helpful to keep them to be faithful Israelites, to be to make to put up this cultural monument to remind them of their, their nationality and uh, their um, uh, uh, their uh, legal uh, standing as part of that nation. Uh, so it was it was nothing but a witness, and so that was good. And indeed, even though it was a replica of the literal altar, even there they seem God seems to give His approval here because their motive justified their use of this thing even though it might have been just, in our day, we might have just put up a big sign that said, remember you're an Israelite, or something like that. We wouldn't need to build an altar. But one of the one of the good things about this is, though, on a secondary thing, is that Reuben, it shows that Reuben was not superstitious at all. Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. For most people, if you put up an altar like this, you'd feel like, oh, well, maybe we've got to use this. We put this up, now we've got to use it. No, they put it up. They had no intention of using it as, a, as an altar. They put it up purely as a memorial. And they weren't superstitious that they were going to, um, uh, the, putting up the altar, that they were going to desecrate the name of the Lord. No, they, they, they had no intention of doing that. And so <clears throat> uh, uh, this whole lesson also indicates there's a, there's a legitimacy to the cultural enterprise, to the six-day development, of the kingdom of God. I've been talking lately on the internet quite a bit about how uh, uh, in our day there are two kinds of Christianity. There's a Christianity that ends with the seventh day and then there's a Christianity that takes your faith from the seventh day into the six days. And when God talks about the kingdom of God in the Bible, he's talking about the effects of the seventh day on the six days. The fact that people take their faith out of worship on the seventh day and they take it into their lives during the six days of the week so that everything points to God. So that even though he didn't command them specifically to build an insurance company this way or to farm in another way, uh, yet because they're using their created sense, the reason that God installed in them, uh, they are glorifying the Lord and they're witnessing to his creativity in their lives. And so that's all legitimate. It's really, it praises the Lord. Uh, Genesis one twenty eight, where God commands us to do this, is a praise to God when we do it. And uh, this is one of the ways where God says, even the wrath of men shall praise me. Because men who are in religious rebellion against the Lord, uh, which is a seventh day problem, very often they are, they're, they, they're developing the creation like they should, or something more like they should. They're not completely abandoning that. People are having children. Some people hate God, but they're having children. God says, the wrath of men shall praise me. The fact that they're 
having children, the fact that they're building families, all testifies to me the goodness of the creation, how I created them to be familial creatures, to love each other and that kind of thing. These things are good too. So uh, um, this story in a tangential way kind of witnesses to this this larger Christian part, the larger part of our Christian endeavor that we are supposed to uh, do these things which are, are not specifically commanded of us, uh, but we're to do them out of uh, fear for the Lord. That's why in the, in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, I think it's a 28, 27, 28, where Jesus condemns the, the man that would not take his money and, uh, and, and uh, lend it out or, or, or use it for, at least put it in an interest-bearing account. The man says, well, I was afraid. I was afraid to do this, that I'd lose the money. And Jesus condemns that man for not, for not venturing forth. Our forefathers that came to this land did not, did not have that problem. They ventured forth in faith, having confidence in the God of providence to take care of them. And they were not even afraid of losing their own lives. Half of them died the first winter. But they were more concerned to build a nation state that would honor the Lord, as seen in the Mayflower Covenant. They were more concerned for that than they were for the fear of their lives. Praise be the Lord for active faith that, that takes our seventh-day faith and takes it into the six days of our existence, even going, crossing the seas, the wild seas, to form a new, a new country, like here in America, which, incidentally, then, we're celebrating somewhat here this weekend. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we, we praise Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ, who has established a new people, of which we are but a part, but a new people, who have faith in him and through him in the Godhead. We thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast given us courage to go forth in this world and to live and to develop the world, to cultivate it and subdue it, knowing that thou art there, O living God, O mighty God, O powerful God, O God who gives us, provides for us all that we need, whether in life or death. We praise thee. We pray that we might have some happiness here in our forebears here in America that went through this for us. And we pray that we might have some enjoyment, especially on the Lord's Day, that we might have some enjoyment of how our forefathers' faith effected and built this nation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.